0: What is cracklack in fellow thermonuclear a effort I am Dan the Valley coming at you with another mailbag before we get started the usual reminders please remember to subscribe to us if you've not done so already hit subscribe on YouTube like and comment on every video to help the algorithm also subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify please rate and review the pod on Apple and Spotify you can rate on both and then leave a review on Apple it doesn't even matter if you don't use them throw both of them go juice those numbers. Help us get up there. If you've done both those things, we would ask that you recommend us to people, friends, family workers, coworkers, enemies, random people on the street or the Internet. You can shout us out on social media, Blue Sky, Twitter, whatever. I will find it and normally share it um, or just give you some type of virtual dap uh, for doing so. Please follow us on all our socials at Hardwood Knox on Twitter and TikTok at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. Join our Discord. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description. And finally, if you'd like to support the show and we would highly encourage you to, um, please buy our merch. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description. We have a bunch of, you know, you can make anything out of them with a bunch of sayings from the podcast that that are on them. That is it on the actual me, the opening begging, I guess it is, or pleading to you know continue to just help us grow this community. Uh, I want to thank our listeners, though, very quickly. I got a message uh, from Katie Heindel, who was on the podcast two weeks ago, one week ago at this point. I can't remember. And apparently there was, she said, there was a cascade of new subscribers to Basketball Feelings on Substack. You should go subscribe to that anyway. The link was in the podcast and YouTube description or just go to basketballfeelings.com. So that, unless you was just blowing smoke up my ass for no reason, I'm very appreciative of having a community that listens to someone and then goes on this podcast and then goes and actually subscribes to their stuff. I think that's really cool. So I want to thank everybody for doing that. It actually does mean a lot. And it was something I was thinking about because I found out I had time to drive. I was driving for a total of like 12 hours this weekend, which uh never happens while well, I was visiting some some friends and their families so uh very just grateful and appreciative of the community that we have continued to build here even though I spend a lot of time i guess focusing on the negative not and i don't mean this not necessarily negative but talking about we want to grow the community and continue to have these new people find us um we probably won't ever pop like we want to if we're being honest on TikTok and youtube and whatever but the people we do have listening and is not insubstantial and the fact that again we can have someone come on this podcast and you will go and look for their work and subscribe to their work uh, that really does that's fucking cool and it does mean a lot so shout out to you guys our listeners our watchers whoever uh for the final time super appreciative appreciative of all of you excuse me and now though Let's dive into the mailbag. As a quick reminder here, I'm going to hit one question from Twitter because they went out of their way to uh, get the question to me. Um, But join the Discord so that you can do. You know, We might be a little bit um, slower on mailbags just because we have a lot of content plans coming out, including we're going to start off-season report cards because fucking James Harden and Damian Lillard just won't get traded already or have their situations resolved. Um, so those will be coming out, but, and then we'll have to go into, you know, I want to start team lookaheads this year a little bit earlier. So I'm not going to basically die, um, by the start of the season when I'm recording like 25 podcasts in two weeks. It's just, it's just too many. So I have to start identifying teams that look like they're done for the off season, or at least before the start of training camp, we'll get into those. But if you want your mailbag question answered and you should go to our discord and join it. The link to that, like I said, in the podcast and YouTube descriptions, Let's dive into what we've got cooking this time around. Our first question will come from Demos Kohl. What is it that doesn't work with the R.J. Barrett and Julius Randle duo? Who is most most likely to get traded? So I think what doesn't work is that they both at times want to occupy the same space, go in the same direction. We're talking about two lefties here. Um, They both prefer to operate on the ball. Um, they do play different positions and serve different functions, which can theoretically help, but you can that means you can use Julius Randle as a screener, and the fact that neither of them are the most efficient spot-up shooters or most reliable spot-up shooters, I think Randle at this stage is probably more reliable there, it means that invariably they're going to allow defenses to occupy the same space, and that can make your offense turn into a slog in the half court, especially during playoff basketball And I think if you want both of them to work, you need one of them to become much more comfortable working without the ball and more efficient working without the ball. That is going to fall on RJ just because Julius Randle is so deep into his career and just so ingrained into the Knicks' pecking order as their number two guy behind Jalen Brunson right now that I don't think the Knicks are ever going to give the type of agency to Barrett that says, hey, we're going to make Julius Randle work off the ball primarily as a screener. That just doesn't work. Uh, and it's look. It's if RJ starts hitting his spot up threes, I guess it gets better. There's no guarantee it works because you are playing Randall with a more traditional center almost at every point throughout the game, just based off Mitchell Robinson. And you know they're not going to have um, and a lot of his minutes are not going to come alongside Isaiah Hartenstein, who's not even allowed to kind of space the floor as much as he was, or 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 I should say being used in the same vein as he was uh, when he played for the Clippers. So it's it. <laughs> It do- I don't want to say it doesn't work. I think it's what doesn't make this duo appealing long term or even immediately is what I would say. Um, You can build capable lineups, but it comes down to can you surround them with enough shooting? And the fact that you are probably going to have a traditional center on the court and that we don't, you know, do you trust? Would you call Jalen Brunson a decidedly above average shooter? And then you're dealing with two guys who are not decidedly above average shooters within this question that we're tackling. That is going to be the issue here. Who is most likely to get traded? It's R.J. Barrett, just because I think he's going to hold more, more value as, as a player who is has a little bit of mystery box appeal left, where it's, well, what happens if we surround him with more spacing and maybe give him a ball, even if it's part of second units? And then also just... He's a wing player, and Julius Randle is a pure four, basically. Maybe other teams could talk themselves into using him at the five, but you need to have a very specific defensive setup around him. And so I think you look at Julius Randle's contract, and we're talking about a two-time All-NBA player here. We'll see if he can string together two consecutive seasons of, of that type of, of play. But he has, after next season, he has three, two guaranteed years left on his contract, at player option in 25-26 at $29.5 million is going to be worth next to nothing of the, the salary cap. It'll be at that stage less than 20% of the projected cap and might even be closer to 15, depending on how quickly it it rises. If we get the, you know, the 10% increments going forward in every year. So, uh, you know, j- like, I guess you look at that and say, well, he's going to decline that option. So there's two years left on his deal. It's shorter and we don't value him as much because we don't want to have to give him, he's extension eligible after the season technically, but we don't want to want to have to foot the bill, on that next deal where you look at it as hey it's only 2 years and so if it doesn't work out like we can cut bait whereas with RJ Barrett he's just starting his 4 year extension it's fully guaranteed um it's not like astronomical but it's going to be in the the nine figures he comes off the books in 26 27 at 29.6 million that, again it's still at that point in twenty six, twenty seven. that's going to be like 15% of the salary cap so I think R.J. Barrett would have more trade value just by virtue of his age and the type of player that he is. And I think that the Knicks are going to need him perhaps a salary ballast if they don't make the move this year, unless they're going to exercise Evan Fournier's option, but they're going to need his money could become important in any trade. They have other mechanisms to do that, including it could be Julius Randle. But let's just look at some of the teams where you're going to be deal- if you're going to target a star from. I guess a team in theory like Cleveland could value a very much win now, older player like Julius Randle, assuming they didn't have Jared Allen playing next to Evan Mobley. But in most cases, I'm just talking about the Cavaliers' window should they look at trading Donovan Mitchell down the line. I'm not making a prediction here. I want to make that clear. But if you're talking about the Sixers and they get to a point where they need to trade Joel and B, they're not going to want Julius Randle. They might not care at that point because what is the direction they're headed down, but you would probably prefer the guy in his early, mid-20s who's just a wing player and you can view as someone with untapped potential. And so because RJ Barrett has more, I would believe, much more trade value and just sort of fits more timelines or at least the traditional structure of a rebuilding team's vision, I think it'll just end up being him. And all this stuff, you know, maybe they're both moved at once or as part of separate deals where it's, okay, we went out and we traded for Joel Embiid. We're definitely not keeping Julius Randle at that point, even though he he wasn't part of that trade. Good question to ask who's the first one to be traded. I also think that the front office is just a little bit more loyal to Randall in part because I think they understand that they're not going to get the the value of Man Series Wild in right now. They understand they're not going to get the value of a two-time All-NBA player back in a trade, Uh, just the way he's viewed around the league and how specific a setup needs to be around him. Austin asks, (laughs) this is an interesting question, Uh, how long into the season slash how bit of a record do you think it would take for the wolves to just dump Rudy for a single first and accept the L on the trade? I bet Dallas would jump on it. Or do you think it's actually more likely they dish cat and he can net a haul? I, this is a, I'm pretty high on the Timberwolves again this season, which is probably bad news for the Timberwolves because I was very high on them last season. if you're seeing the screen shake, uh, just that's the price you have to pay. If you want timestamps while I'm doing this alone, this is a, Uh, It's not a one-man, one-person operation. I have Grant, and he's fantastic, but especially in a podcast like this where I'm, you know, producing it, editing it, trying to timestamp it. I'm the one who's doing the TikTok and the shorts and the IG videos right now. Just deal with the shaky screen. We've had a couple complaints in the past. If you want the timestamps, it lasts like a millisecond. Uh, So, yeah. (laughs) Back to the question at hand, though, as I saw the screen shake while I was typing in, I think. I think so. Let's look at the Wolves from this perspective. There will be major change, I believe, earlier than normal. If we're talking 15, 20 games into the season and they're like seven and eight or eight and nine or 10, even like 10 and 10 or nine and nine and 11, just because they can't afford to lose that much ground. And when you're looking, let's say they get into that situation, which I just wouldn't predict. I think if they're healthy, there's going to be something here. I still believe Towns is most likely to get traded because Rudy Gobert has. You could say three guaranteed years left on his deal, two more post-dating this next season. Um, he's at about $90 million in 24, 25, and then 25, 26. That's at least a reasonable length. But if you're trading him early on, teams are going to look at that as a three-year commitment to, to Rudy Gobert at three years and $130-plus thirty-plus million That's a ton. And Carlton Towns is younger. His contract runs longer. And I think that we've lost the plot when it comes to his value, I understand he has his limitations and outright flaws defensively. And it's just, I don't think moving him next to Rudy Gobert was necessarily the answer to solve all of them. I think it really helps that Edwards and McDaniels are there with him now. In addition to having Alexander Walker to log some, some wing minutes and also just Mike Conley being at this point, I feel like DeAndre Russell was not as bad defensively in Minnesota as we saw him at, at previous stops. Uh, but Mike Conley just feels like more of a solid option there, even as he gets older. So that might make it a little bit easier. And you brought in Troy Brown as well. And that's, I can't remember who I saw that said Troy Brown was going to be like a great upgrade for them from Torian Prince. I just, I don't really buy it. Um, I think they're going to wind up missing Prince, not a doomsday scenario here, but I I found that comment interesting. I can't remember who it came from. So I think it would be towns just by virtue of you need a haul because it's even if you don't believe that you're, going to remain competitive you are trying to like immediately after that trade you are trying to juggle a bunch of different stuff and i think in any trade because you're so asset light on your end whatever major trade you make needs to yield you players who can perform now since gobert's pretty old conley's pretty old Anthony edwards is ready to win now Jaden mcdaniels is already good So you want that return back, but you also want other assets and maybe even some of those in the form of players, not just picks, who will allow you to be flexible on the trade market moving forward should these other opportunities present yourself. Again, you're dealing with Mike Conley being on an expiring contract, so you have some interesting salaries here that you can move if you're looking to take a bigger swing. You just need to keep yourself in play for those bigger swings. That's going to be easier to do if you get rid of Carl Anthony Towns. It is the wrong move from a Talon talent perspective especially looking at the long-term trajectory but if you say okay well we already have our best offensive player and do if our second best offensive player makes this much money and really just can't play defense um, and we have nas reed who has a floor game himself on offense maybe we trust his three-pointer he's not really the shooter that towns is he's not the passer that towns can be you might say okay he's gonna be a little bit easier to replace for us or replicate or come close to approximate than it would for Rudy Gobert's defensive value. Where I thought he was not the same level of rim protector for much of last year, but he was still pretty dominant for long stretches. I, I think it just has to be town. And it's, I also just, I think if you told them, let's just say they could trade him Gobert for an expiring contract. Your position is such that you would still be left with, okay, this is just our team because we don't have any other assets and we're going to have, um Anthony Edwards' extension kicking in on top of on top of Carl Anthony Towns excuse me making about 50 million uh after next season and so okay you could in theory have some cap space if you don't extend Jaden McDaniels but if you extend Jaden McDaniels it's bye-bye cap space and you're still not talking about meaningful enough room to make a difference we're also still not talking about a flagship market that's known for poaching free agents and oh hey we're not really talking about a league in which free agents of value are really leaving anymore it happens every once in a while on the level of a Fred Van Vliet. But are you walking into that in 2024? I don't think so. So it it has to be Towns because the next trade, if you're making that trade, it's not just about panic. It's about resetting your deck for both timelines, the now and the later. And that's just going to be much more feasible to do in a Towns trade. And I do think, should it come to it, and I don't think it will this season, we'll see how wrong I am. We're going to be... But again, should it come to that? We're going to be surprised at how much Carlin T. Towns actually nets because we're talking about unless he sucks it up to start this year, still someone who is a transcendent offensive player. Carrigan asks, what are realistic expectations for John Collins on the Jazz next season? I don't think he's going to flirt for this all-star berth on the Jazz. I-, I think the realistic expectation you want to really look at and say, okay, can he get his three-point clip back? He was at 29.2% last season, by far and away a career low, but he was dealing with some hand injuries. Can you get him back up to that? Let's, he doesn't need to shoot 40% like he did for two years, and I think it was 2020 and 2021. Can you get back to the 36%, 37% mark? Um, can we use him in more screen and roll opportunities? And that means he's going to need to play the five. So can you effectively exist in lineups where it's John Collins and, and Kelly Olenek. So let's not say that he's necessarily the five in all those combinations, but can you get away with when Walker Kessler's on the floor, John Collins and Taylor Hendricks or John Collins and Larry Martin as sort of your front court? Um, I think expectation would be, okay, let's see his three point clip come up. Let's see him be able to function defensively and offensively um, in lineups where Walker Kessler's not at the five. And I think it's also a question of, in lineups when Walker Kessler is at the five. And so it's, can he be the, the the partner big in whatever front court combination you're looking at? Because when Kessler's on the floor, you are going to have to do a lot of catch and shoot stuff. If they want to explore more of his game, maybe when Larry Martin's off the floor, can you let him try and attack off the dribble? We saw glimpses of that in Atlanta, though not so much over the past couple years. And I think that's really what you're hoping for is that he can be a part of whatever big man combination that you want to roll out at the four and the five specifically though you want to make sure since I think Kessler's you know you're what is is he the most the second most important long-term player on this team depending on how you feel about Ochai Akbaji so can he partner up with Walker Kessler effectively at both ends but you also want it's not just a matter of efficiency it's well can he figure out ways to contribute even if he's not able to be the the primary screener and I think you know, we should get a nice little sample on that because the Jazz have all these players that work sort of up front. We know Lowry will play tons of three, but Collins and Lowry would be borderline offensive juggernaut in the front court. I think that you probably get enough defense out of Taylor Hendricks. Can he sort of man the five, though? He's a good um, helper and like sort of rotational rim- or excuse me, rim protector when he's making rotations can he and John Collins play together? Only well, again, John Collins feels like it might be asking a lot. And it's sort of just, if you're going to go that route, you might as well just go with Lowry and John Collins, at the front court. And so maybe that is sort of the simplifying the question of, okay, we want to see a shooting come up and we want to see the John Collins de facto center minutes, be a net plus when Walker Kessler's off the floor, we want to look at this guy and say, okay, he can be our backup five as well as our, as well as our starting four. And I think it's realistic to expect that out of him. And, you know, if you want to get into like real numbers, Yeah, his best season, his two best seasons, he was at, like, close to 20 points. I think you want to see him around that 15, 16, 17 points per game, being able to play around 30 minutes per game, hitting, you know, like he always has. You want to see his two-point percentage, certainly, uh, which is why you want to milk him as the screener and and roller, even a screener and popper. But he's shooting, like, 60-plus percent on twos for his career. So uh, you want to see that. And then also, it'd be nice if we're talking about improvement, I know a lot of people focus on the defense. Can you sort of see him ratchet up his passing a little bit? If he's going to put the ball on the floor, can he make plays, make dishes below the free throw line? Uh, That would be just the realistic expectation for him though. I would set it at let's see the three point percentage bump up and let's see him be able to be not just work alongside Walker Kessler, but be able to float units as either the de facto five or next to another big, depending on how you feel or what you would consider Taylor Hendricks in those situations. Uh unbiased Pistons fan says players like Hamadou Diallo, Christian Wood, PJ Washington, who are definitely rotation level at worst, are still unsigned. Is this because of the Harden-Lillard situation, the new CBA, or something else I'm missing? I think in a lot of these scenarios, it's just going to be a combination of different things here. In the case of PJ Washington, I don't really know what's going on in in Charlotte. Maybe he was expecting some bigger offers. I doubt they're trying to work the phones on sign and trade scenarios. He doesn't have the leverage to get a better offer sheet right now. I think in his case, maybe he's actually weighing signing the qualifying offer, like Miles Bridges did with Christian Wood. I think you're waiting probably for the Damian Lillard situation specifically to settle because would the Heat consider getting involved in a you know sign and trade with Dallas on that rather than you just going to the Lakers for the minimum? And in the, and with Diallo, I think that could be an offshoot of the CBA unless teams are really worried about, about his uh, ankle injury that he suffered to close last season. I think that could be a function of the CBA, which I would say all of these are maybe a function of the CBA where uh, for some reason teams – and this isn't a CBA thing, but looking at P.J. Washington specifically – Teams are still just reticent to hand out these offer sheets. I still can't believe that Austin Reeves didn't get one. No one tried to force the Lakers to pay more there. Kudos to them for projecting an air of we'll match anything across the league. But you need to invite these teams that have cap space to be more aggressive when it comes to RFA offer sheets and not tying up their cap space for as long. That might account for PJ Washington. But looking at the new CBA, just... Consider how many teams spent the full mid-level, full mid-level exception this year, their full non-tax mid level, I would say specifically. That would be Toronto, and I'm pretty sure that's it. And so because teams are fearing the apron, and even if it's an artificial feel and they never, feel, and they never would have paid the tax anyway, the, the, uh, let's use the Hawks as an example, but they're still kind of using that as the threat of, oh, no, we need to stay out of any sort of tax apron because of how punitive it could be down the line. They didn't use their mid level at all. And so I think someone like Diallo kind of falls by the wayside, where he's a mid, he's like a mid tier guy who should be in the taxpayer mid level discussion. I would say maybe the room, it, maybe the room exception probably shouldn't get the whole non taxpayer mid level. But because of the way that these structures work now, and I think it will get even worse as time goes on and we can see teams hold on to these exceptions to use them in trades. The, these are players that kind of drop Diallo and Wood not so much PJ Washington that kind of just fall by the wayside and they're going to end up taking unless something materializes after the, you know, maybe that's what they're waiting on to see what teams settle on as a result or, or are left out of the Harden Lillard situation. I just, I can't see that would it might impact the most just if Miami decides to have interest in him. Again, they have Kevin love though. They're like, are you really that high on the Christian Wood bam at bio combination? I mean, maybe, maybe you are. Um, so if you're Diallo and Wood, you, kind of want to just wait it out if all you have at your disposal right now is going to be going to be minimums and that would just be my guess here i think the middle class some people have said that this is but i really think the middle class of players going to be adversely impacted by this new cba as time goes on next question comes from glad they ask if the if if the Spurs see Devin Vassell developing into a number two option, think Chris Middleton, should they extend him to a contract as such? Say, I don't know, four for $140 million or five for 180 Because if he does take that leap and they only give him a four for 80 or $100 million contract, he prices himself out of another extension in the future like DJ did. It would make more sense for him to go into unrestricted free agency to get a bag rather than extend since the Spurs are capped at 140% max extension off his last year. There is risk, obviously, if he doesn't reach that potential, but would but I would think it's a bigger risk losing him in free agency. That's an interesting way to sort of look at this where uh, it be what glad is asking here. If anyone sort of lost track of that is so should the Spurs extend themselves to maybe even in higher number than he would agree to, because they're going to be limited when he's eligible for an extension in two or three years from that point to say, Hey, we can only give you 140% of your deal. And if he's only making, let's say t- say 25 if he's making 20 million is going to be less likely to sign that because he would still be making under 30 million um or i guess it'd be over 30 million at that point when looking at where his contract finishes but if it's a flat rate you know if you're going to extend him off a 20 million dollar number you're only going to be able to offer him sub 30 million which at that point relative to where the cap is going won't be that much and if he develops into a max type player you're going to risk him hitting the the open market i still think This is the, you want to maximize your team building flexibility. And as Brian Windhorst calls this, the fun max contract. It doesn't have to be a max contract is what I'm saying. This is the fun extension because the players, a lot of the times, if they're really valuable are going to end up being on your team for sub market value. And you're not going to, you know, I think you can't think too far ahead where it's two or three years down the line and worry about an extension here, um, Because you can still have the ability to re-sign him the most in unrestricted free agency. It's Yes, there's a risk in him leaving, but free agency has not changed to the point where we're seeing players of Chris Middleton's level, if that's what we think he's going to reach, uh, we're not seeing them walk in free agency. Now, if you just want to make the bet anyway, where it's, no, we're not going to inflate his salary, but is this someone who deserves you know, he's not going to get a max extension, although he's probably, he is probably looking at Desmond Bain and saying, no, God, look at that. But is he, he like, you're not going to give him, I'm saying the five year, $205.9 million contract. Could you give him, like, f- do you offer him five? And was the, or do you offer him, excuse me, four and I don't know, four and one, 120, something along those lines. Do you offer him, you know, even they'll go up from there. Uh, I I don't know. I think you have to believe that he's that player and that's where you really get into it. And so we're talking about someone who I think if he wants to meet, you know, and if he's going to be Chris Middleton, he doesn't necessarily need to do this. But sort of the next frontier for him is I want to see him improve his facilitation and get to the basket more, drum up his free throw volume more, be more aggressive in, in that regard but you still look at his entire package and he was in the 84th percentile of efficiency as the pick and roll ball handler last year. And this is someone who does not turn the ball over a ton in those situations. Um, for everyone who ran at least a hundred pick and rolls last year, this is the list of players who averaged over one point per possession with a turnover rate of under 10%. We have Jalen Brunson, Anthony Simons, Tyrese Maxey, Jimmy Butler, Kyrie Irving, Monte Morris, and Devin Vassell. That's awesome company to keep. And Vassell ran quite a bit of pick and rolls per game. He had the lowest volume because he missed so much time with injury. Could the Spurs be worried about his durability in his next deal? Perhaps. Still, I just think this is someone there's... I question whether he'll stop bailing out when he gets to the basket. Could he ever be a viable, you know, a super viable ISO option? The Spurs aren't going to ISO a ton, but... He shot sub, He had a sub 30 effective field goal percentage in isolation uh, last year. Can he nudge that up? Can he be more efficient when he's going to, to get to his drives? And part of that is he he can't bail out before the basket. You want him to to get fouled more. But like this is someone who didn't have a whole lot of talent or even spacing around him last season. And he still dropped the 12 and a half assist rate on his drives. And so there were over 130 players to use at least 300 drives last year. And anyone to match his assist rate or turnover rate, which was four and a half, a four and a half turnover rate and a 12 and a half assist rate. I hope I'm not talking too fast here. There were only four players that did that. Chris Paul, Fred Van Vliet, Tyrese Halliburton, and Devin Vassell. Like that's, that's super wild. And you can even, you know, if you want to lower the threshold, there'll be some names that come in there, but out of 130 plus players to use 300 drives, you're keeping or more drives, excuse me, you're keeping that type of company. That's pretty absurd. I don't know if he'll ever make super complicated passes, but this is someone who is a smart passer. And so if he can get to the basket more, if he can get to the line more, or if he can develop maybe more of a pull-up three-pointer, not just like from the mid-range or someone who can hit more difficult three-point attempts, you check two of those box two of those four boxes where it's you know, and I think getting to the foul line can come with rim pressure. And so if you put more pressure on the basket, the foul through on those drives, become a more aggressive ball handler in that regard there's your two of the four boxes. But if you can check two of those four, where it's free throw frequency, rim frequency, hitting some more difficult three pointers and then just upping your playmaking. I think honestly, one of those, the rim pressure might just sort of def- like be the domino effect for another two on top of that, the playmaking and the, the free throw frequency. And so that becomes a big deal. I say all this because one, I'm incredibly high on Devin Vassell for anyone who listens to this podcast on a regular basis knows, but two, I would be comfortable if the Spurs went the route of, you know what? We're thinking the way that Glad's thinking here, and we want to ensure that we can extend him off this number to where maybe it doesn't hit his max, whatever it could be at that point, but it's it's a number that will get him thinking. And so if you want to go, Glad suggests four for 140 would be mega aggressive. Uh, an average of $35 million a year for, for Devin Vassell is not something. Like, that's super close to his four-year max right now is like four and 159. So – would you do it? I wouldn't would I do it. Four and one forty for Devin Vassell. It feels a little rich. I would do it. I would do it if that's if that's a number. Four and one twenty is a no-brainer for me. Maybe four and one thirty is that the middle ground. And you know, you go from that point, and it's by his salary will then be high enough to where let's let's say it's just flat. It won't be flat. Maybe it'll probably it'll probably be escalating. Um so you get because it'll be some max, you can make it flat. If it's off of thirty-five million dollars and you're able to give him a hundred and forty percent raise right off the bat, you're talking about fifty million dollars salary, almost forty-nine. Yeah, that's going to be a number even at that time for four or five years down the line. You could also just go the fifth year. It might be—is that the compromise? Where it's he gives up a player option and you're no, you're not giving him the max, but can you just go the full five years here? Which at that point is it five and one eighty? Five and 190 is that like that's not even the middle ground, so something along those lines. Um, I would do it. Um, I think specifically the four for 140 is a good number, four for 130 might just be a little bit more um sensible because you can make it flat from that point. And so his max salary in year one of the extension, as of right now, can be 35 and a half million. Um, so yeah, I would do it. I don't know if I would do it specifically for that reasoning, but that's a really interesting question glad and i think that he is good enough to think in those terms where it's we're not just betting on his upside we're betting on his upside and saying we want to also be able to retain that upside via an extension and so make that part of your calculations that that was just that was a fantastic question uh the big fella asks Oh, this is a, this, oh, that's right. The, I'm looking at the bullet points I have set in my notes for this one. This is another, we have a lot of good questions. We have always have a lot of good questions, but still uh, the big fella. If you are receiving a 2029 first round pick from any team in the league, who do you view as the least valuable of all teams? Been a lot of talk about how invaluable the heats picks are. So they, so they come to mind, maybe the Celtics if they have Tatum and Brown signed then, or the Lakers, because they were always going to be a FA destination regardless. Uh, some teams that spring to mind here I think Boston is a good one just because Tatum is still so young and Brown's still so young. They've put themselves in a little bit of a risky situation with the Porzingis addition. Still, I think I think they're a really good bet. Um, I, you have to look at some of these up-and-coming teams of, okay, well, maybe you don't necessarily trust the organization, so we're not going to go with the Pistons. But I would not want a Magic 2029 first-round pick when they just have Paolo Bancaro, Wendell Carter Jr., and – Franz Wagner on that team. Forget, just forget about everyone else. Those three just really do it for me. Uh, another team's one and two. And like, this is so long that they could, some of these teams could really go through proper rebuilds. I don't know that I want a jazz 2029 first round pick. Um, if, if you're asking me to choose between Orlando, Utah, or Boston, I think I'd probably still not want Boston's the most. Another question to sort of look at with this is who's, who's would you want the most? And the the heat and the Lakers side from this discussion, too, where it's no, you don't want those picks because you talk about how they're not really valuable, even though their teams are getting older. The two that sprang to mind since I did this exercise both ways, I have Charlotte just because I don't fucking trust Charlotte as far as like I just I'd like even at all. Um, and then I also have the sons here just because at that point, yeah, Devin Booker is still in his prime, but Bradley Beal and Kevin Durant will not be and they probably won't even be in Phoenix that those picks are, of course they're already gone. Uh, so but it would have to be a matter of, Oh, the nets are actually trading it. But if I could have any teams, 2029 first round pick unprotected, it'd probably be Charlotte's uh, or, or be Phoenix's. I think uh, you could go Chicago's maybe, or does Toronto factor into that equation? Maybe uh, th- this question feels like there's a lot more answers, but I think Boston's the correct answer to the, to the actual question here. And I think, the closest one that comes to rival, rivaling them, I think I might go with Utah. They don't have that North Star just yet, but the sheer number of assets they have is going to allow them to go out there and, and just make wild wild trades if, if they want to. So they're not going to go through this extensive rebuild, and you can trust that Danny Angel will be aggressive on the trade market. We just saw it with the John Collins deal, even though that was... With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. he's going to monitor the market for and He will, he will act even despite the jokes, including ones that I've made about his, his, his like strew or slew, excuse me, of, of almost while he was in Boston, everything black asks, you're the new owners of the Charlotte Hornets. Why do you hate me? Is just my, my first response to that. Uh, but you're the new owner of the Charlotte Hornets. What direction are you, are you heading in? Uh, what moves do you make to undo the damage of the previous regime? So, I start over and go through a proper rebuild and I don't, maybe it's not even a matter of start over, but I am looking at dealing everyone Gordon Hayward's expiring deal. I'm only dealing that if I'm getting expiring money back or bad money, long-term money back that's attached to picks. I'm looking at, can I get off of Terry Rozier's money maybe for a worse contract or a less desirable contract? um, That's going to come with draft equity, or can I just get an expiring deal for his services? Uh, I basically what I'm doing is I'm roping off Lamelo Ball, especially because he just signed an extension, and the poison pill provision makes it difficult to move him. I'm roping off Lamelo Ball. I'm roping off Mark Williams, and I you have to rope off Brandon Miller at this point. And that's like that's kind of it. And I'm just looking to recoup as many future first round picks out of the equation of what's left as I can. I'm giving more run if you're not moving these guys like, oh, is there anything in JT Thor and, and Kai Jones left to explore? I'm I'm kind of out on the James book Knight experience. So you could, they could do with whatever with them. It's tough because they're, they're basically in this spot already to where they could just continue to rebuild and not blow it up. I think the big one is, okay, do you look at moving miles bridges? He opted into his, he, excuse me, he signed his qualifying offer. He's going to be a UFA next UFA next summer. But that also means that he has an implied no trade clause and his bird rights aren't going to transfer. Can you get any value from him? I would just look at moving him because you're not going to want to pay him a bunch of money. There should be sign and trade scenarios right now for P.J. Washington on the table. That would be the move that you make to signal that, hey, this is the direction we're going. It is is a P.J. Washington sign and trade. And, and that's just the route I would go because I don't think these accessory pieces around LaMelo and Mark Williams and Brandon Miller, even if all three of those guys reach their peaks, are going to be intriguing enough to make this team profoundly competitive to where they're doing more than contending for maybe a six seed or something. Um, It's In their case though, it's always a lot easier said than done in their case though, it's just tricky because they don't have much even of value to move. Yeah. If you put Lamelo next summer on the open market, he's definitely going to net you a ton of value, but you're not really at that route. You can have the one max deal on your books and still continue to try and rebuild around him. But what I look Would I, you know, make it completely off limits within the next two years. Like let's get him to go through the first year of his max deal and just sort of see where we lie. I mean, the other thing here is I don't think he has any player options on his contract. And so you do have the flexibility to sort of wait this out and, you know, two, three additional years, including this one. So three or four years total to kind of figure this thing out around him. Yeah. Mark Williams, Brandon Miller, LaMelo, and let's just, you know, let's just try and figure out if any of these other guys have values like a Kai Jones like a Daichi Thor of course some of the rookies they have this year Nick Smith Jr um, James James and I so just yeah that's the route that I would definitely go down if I'm them I and I think the the harbinger the the like the most poignant harbinger of traveling down that road would be oh we're looking now at signing and trading pj washington or maybe it's even just we're making the midseason move of trading pj washington once he's trade eligible once he finally agrees to his deal and moving miles bridges even though i guess you kind of lose the opportunity to move him in a side and trade next summer if you're doing that that's just and i feel like that's almost an easy answer uh, everything blacks almost also has another question um, they ask. Are Lillard and Harden, the cork in the bottle, holding up other trades, or have other teams simply been resigned to their fate with the rosters they have? I'm thinking Toronto, Dallas, Atlanta, and Chicago as teams that should make moves, but they haven't. So it's a case-by-case basis. I think that in some of the teams are just, they've resigned to their fate or they've, they've chosen their direction, whereas we want Chicago to make these teardown moves. They're not going to based off what they did this offseason, whereas they went and they paid Javon Carter. They brought back... Nikola Vucevic, they're a team that's trying to tread water where they were and somehow improve, Um, even though they're not adding a ton of talent to nudge them in that direction. They're probably banking on Patrick Williams getting a lot better. In the case of Toronto, they've kind of done something similar. Even Atlanta, they've just said, hey, we're going to trade water. They have been loosely linked to Pascal Siakam, but are the Raptors going to go down that path now when they paid Jakob Pertle and they did use their entire mid-level on Dennis Schroeder to replace Van Fleet? letting fev walk so just that maybe they would consider that now feels like it's going to have to be just sort of this monster offer that bowls them over and i don't know that they're going to get that right now which which leads me to the next part of this it's just the time of year in some respect yeah that harden and lillard could be holding up some talks for some players but it really just feels like maybe that's the siakam sweepstakes and i'm not even you know the teams that are going to be most invested in damian lillard and james harden the clippers and the heat like they're not going to be materially attached to Pascal Siakam, I wouldn't think. It's more so this is not the time of year where teams are going to make, let's say, teardown moves or buys for you know candidates that aren't obvious because let's use the Mavs. They very clearly need wing defense. What's the wing defense that's available? That's not being held up by Harden or Lillard right now. Those are moves that will become more available to them as the regular season plays out. Usually, I know we view December as the unofficial start of trade season. It's really close to the trade deadline when that happens, but you could see if some teams are just ready to pull or, or rather pull the sellers lever um, a little bit earlier. And so I think you're going to see a team like Dallas that's looking to buy maybe even Atlanta, if they're looking to buy, but they're in such a weird cap situation, not wanting to pay the tax. They're going to be more aggressive as you get into the regular season and more options will come available to them. And those options might be born from teams like Chicago, like Toronto finding out oh hey we're just not good again and really it is time to hit this reset button and so I think this is very much just the time of the year and I don't I think Lillard and Harden yeah they could be holding up some business I just don't think it's it's much I th- I think you know I think Siakam is probably just the best case study here where it's okay, does, is he being held up at all? Like the trade offers for him because of Harden and I just, I can't get there. I think that we're just at the point in the summer where everything's settled. Teams want to see what they are and we will see more sellers, you know, again, the teams that need to buy, they will be exposed to more sellers once the regular season's underway. Again, probably two months, three months, whatever, maybe, maybe, again, maybe there are some, there's some early sellers like Minnesota, for instance. I don't think there will be though. And then there will be teams that become sellers, which kind of fuel that market. I just don't think that the should-be sellers are there yet. Portland comes closest, but until Damian Lillard kind of opens up the sweepstakes, and I don't know if he will, it's just going to be in a weird holding pattern. And Even in the heat specifically, could they be looking at doing something that is an alternative to Lillard, but still sort of aggressive? Maybe, but they'll probably wait to go into the regular season and see if they can not stumble into him, but wind up with him, a la Kevin Durant with the Suns, where he rescinded his trade request and then he eventually ended up in Phoenix. Anyway. Um, good question though. This next question comes from Colin. What position makes it easiest to what position is makes it easiest to maintain value as a player ages? And what is the hardest? That's a fascinating question. I think at this point it has more to do with sort of archetype and function to where I don't want to manipulate the the question like this, but I would say the the toughest position to age would be the like the athletic point guard, the the, the John Morant, the Russell Westbrook, the Derrick Rose, because when you only not only have athleticism, but when it's sort of this primal force for you, um, you rely on it so much during your peak that it becomes incredibly hard to adjust and adapt in the vein of being a more complementary player or finding other ways to contribute at a high and comparative level as you're getting older, because if you've spent your entire prime, not needing to depend on being a spot of three point shooter, or even a pull up three point shooter, and you really need your speed to get by guys and draw fouls and attack the basket. Um, it becomes difficult. And we've look, we've seen it with Russell Westbrook. We even saw it with Derek Rose, though injury certainly factored into that. And so that would be my pick there. I think you could just say hyper athletic, everything, of, of course, but with point guards or four generals specifically it just gets tougher because a lot of that stuff is happening on the ball. The easiest position to, to age, I think it's like an off guard and I'm not, I mean, like look at how long Jamal Crawford and Lou Williams were kind of in the league, but it's also just a matter of when you're an off guard, you're not over tasked with necessarily anything. You're being moved around on defense for the most part. Um, you don't have to be hyper-athletic. You can live from the perimeter. You can come off the bench um, and lead those units as sort of a secondary playmaker, and so i really do think it's that and yeah if you're if you're predicated on hyper explosiveness but if your job is to really just score and be a you know a third off third in line offensive steward um, that feels like the best spot to be in as you age i think you could also just say is it a 3 and d wing where that's not someone who's going to get a lot of on ball agency on offense so you're not going to see their usage through the roof and then they get the focus on defense but even that feels like sort of exhaustive depending on what assignments they're going to cover where you look at og ananobi who's just going to run the gamut and defend every position does that age as well as someone who oh i'm kind of only guarding like the two and the three and the four and so i think i would go with with off guard there that's a great question and it's actually it's actually a really tough question last chance who if this is the last chance that i'm thinking of is a very 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 good friend of the show and hopefully i'll be speaking to him soon about the uh detroit pistons Asks, what, if anything, should we take away from Anthony Edwards' soon-to-be World Cup performance? I think the things I ought to be watching for is, does the spot-up three work? He was at sub-29% in the playoffs. We've seen him hit it before, but you want him to be able to play off others so that Jaden McDaniels can expand his game. You have Towns, you have Conley. The big thing for me, though, and I, I won't read into anything defensively that I see, I'm sorry, is can he sort of set up the offense more efficiently and consistently? more consistently efficiently is pro- more consistently efficient would be the best way to phrase that in the half court on his drives. Um, we've seen the peak of what he can be, but like there's still uh, as a passer, I mean, there's still so far for him to go there. I think even when you're looking at his drives, which is where he's going to be his most dangerous, he was 43rd. Uh, there were 51 players to average at least 10 drives per game last year. He ranked 43rd in assist rate. He was dead last in pass rate. And I think when you watch and you go back and you see some of the, he wasn't super turnover prone, but when you see some of the turnovers, it's a lot of him being indecisive when trying to split double teams or trying to change hands at the wrong times when he's splitting double teams, or he lets himself get too deep under the basket and is trying to throw these really tough baseline passes. But then he can also get a little tunnel vision when he gets below the free throw line. And I think he sort of needs to nip that stuff in the butt and you want to see him make more complicated passes where it's, Hey, I'm not just trying to work it to one of the guys in the corners. I'm going to throw passes behind me, or I'm going to throw quicker um, thread-the-needle pocket passes before I even put the ball on the floor. And so I guess what I want to see from him, and I'll watch for it in the World Cup, I'll watch for it all of next season, but especially at the beginning, on the first quarter of the season, which I think will be critical for the Wolves, is he mixing up his array of passes on a more continuous basis? We've seen him throw these the difficult passes I'm referencing, throwing it behind him, hitting Rudy Gobert in the pocket, We've seen him do it. We have seen him do it, but it's just not consistently enough. We, I have seen enough, however, to I would say no, but to firmly believe that he is going to be that guy. Where this is someone who cannot, who won't just be the the primary scoring engine. Like he will be the primary passing engine for an elite offensive team. When you pair that with his with his defensive tools, we're talking about someone who who has an MVP's ceiling, and that's a, again, that's of course what we're going to be watching for. Um, we'll see if it manifests this season. Is it next season? He's still he's still really young. We're only entering is this year. He just signed his extension, so he's entering year four. Um, but I, I do think that you can take away, and it's does he play with a little bit? When you watch him, it's like okay, he might do these drop offs or just sort of these push passes, maybe where he's not putting the ball on the floor and things are slowed down. But he doesn't kind of have the methodical off the dribble game. Like let's pull back, and there's a change of cadence here. Uh, it's very much like I'm going to go and I'm going to try and split through this double team or or go around someone. We saw a little bit more of him just kind of being more deliberate when he is working surgically. Um, but can you just vary those cadences a little bit to where you're not, let's say, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm operating from a one or two or all the way to the 11. Like, let's look at some of those in-between num- numbers on the dial, a five, a six, a seven. I'm talking about the the acceleration with which he's going after it on possessions and look, he has it in him. We've seen it. Let's just, can we see more of it and more consistently? That's a great question though. And we'll have to see how he, I think world cup is being played as I actually record this, or it might already be done. We'll see if he, you know, we'll see if this does anything for his development there. This next question comes from kill and it is a bear of a question or it ended up being a bear of a question based off how I approached said question do you have any two early camp battles you're looking forward to? Utah's a bunch of power forwards. Magic have a bunch of guards. Bulbul's obviously going to push for KD's starting spot. What lineups do you think are in flux? So I went through all the teams in the league, and I tried to limit it to fewer than half of just sort of looking at overarching rotation questions I have for them, maybe with a focus on starting and closing lineups. Um, Atlanta stands out. Who's going to be the fourth or fifth starter or just the, f- the fifth member of their co- best closing unit? A lot of people have Sadiq Bey penciled into it. Could they start smaller with Bogdanovich or uh, A.J. Griffin? Do they give Jalen Johnson a shot at those minutes? Boston, who's the big next to KP? Is it Horford? Is it RW3? Does that even get decided in camp, or is it just availability? Decides it. Charlotte's front court, I have all sorts of questions here. Um, assuming P.J. Washington's back, who starts? But Because you're only going to start two of those guys, assuming Mark Williams is your center. So Miller, Bridges, and P.J. Washington, who, who among them is starting, who's coming off the bench if Washington's back? Dallas is, I guess, Dallas's Dallas front court is all over the place. Um, does Josh Green get the nod over THJ? Are they also, when you're looking at the front front court, are they just defaulting to Powell and Grant up front? Is it can Derek Lively infringe upon Rashawn Holmes' backup five minutes in the rotation at all? Does Maxi Kleba nudge the five spot in any direction, or is he going to be more of a? I mean, he he's a four or five, but do they view him strictly as a four? Denver. I think the Vladko uh, Chanchar torn ACL coupled with Bruce Brown's departure means that, okay, Peyton Watson needs to play this year. But aside from him and Christian Brown, are they going to really try out Julian Strouther as a, a rookie to get Burn? Or are they going to look to hope that they land someone on the trade market or in the buyout market eventually? I honestly don't know. But I, I thought uh, Chanchar was going to wind up factoring into the rotation, especially if they were bringing Peyton Watson along slowly. Uh, and, you know, part of this might be, okay, if Zeke Najee can effectively fill both four or five minutes off, off the pine, that does make it a little bit easier then um, to where, okay, we don't have to worry about filling some of those four spot minutes either. Um, the Jeff Green minutes, the the four minutes, and then the small ball five minutes. None of these other guys that I mentioned are going to be in that discussion, um, but you could slide a Peyton Watson, or you could slide a Julian Strouther in theory up as a small ball four type uh, Detroit, I mean, the front court. I just do they start Duran and Wiseman, which was happening towards the end of last season. Are you how married are you to this too big model? To where I think Isaiah Stewart is the closest you're going to get to not a stretch four, but a, a should be five that can effectively play the four. I do believe that he can do that. Just how married are you to that setup? Because I think that Bojan McDonough should be logging time at power forward if you want to maximize the spacing around your three most important players. Probably are Sar Thompson. Jaden ivy and kate cunningham none of whom are the most effective outside shooters the rockets i'm just interested in everything but more so what does kpj's role look like on this team now that you have brooks and fred van fleet um you jalen green is going to factor into that and then are you going to find minutes for jay sean tate here uh, Will well al prinishing have a quick hook they did sign jock landale and jeff green who can play some small ball five uh, with the lucky land slot. you can get lucky just about anywhere Uh, you could also slide Jabari Smith Jr. up to the five. So, those are things I'm going to be watching for. Not sure much of that's decided in camp. Uh, the Pacers, I'm still kind of fascinated with the the wing minutes. I know they're going to skew small and spacey and fast, but you have Brown, Benedict Matherin, Aaron e. Smith, Andrew Nemhard. Is Are any of those guys going to fall out of favor? I don't like you. You have equity invested in Brown, the money for one year, and Matherin, just the pick that you've expended on him. Um, or are you just very much going to play small all the time, and it's and we're going to see Jalen Smith and Obi Top and not really factor into the four at all because you want to get all these guys ample wing minutes, and it helps that Nemhard, of course, can play some point guard. The Grizzlies can Zaire Smith, uh, excuse me, can Zaire Williams get back into the mix this year? Hopefully, he's had a healthy summer on like last se- uh, off season. Smart and Bain aren't going anywhere in the rotation, and that kind of means you know if you want him to play some of the four it's can he usurp a handful of santi aldama xavier tillman john Conchar, david roddy or jake laravia so it's like those three four spots the bucks i just interested everyone kind of pencils in grace Allen as that fifth starter closing guy spot can beasley or crowder or conington sort of infringe upon those minutes the knicks it's I guess you could say who starts, who closes. It's just weird. They have Brunson, Robinson, and Randall. I think those are their locks to start, and then everyone assumes it's going to be Grimes and RJ. With you have Hart, Quickly, and Dante DiVincenzo coming off the bench. But like specifically the RJ Grimes, Hart, Quickly, DV uh, quintet, like you could play around with that, and it's only going to be two of those guys that are playing alongside the other three. I, I think if we're talking about who, which lineup ends up being the most important or most effective or the one they lean on the most. It's probably, like, it might be Josh Hart and Grimes. I'm just not sure that it's going to be RJ necessarily, um, but they they still have some rotation questions at the top, and I don't think it's going to be quickly, um, who you could say, like, let's just downsize there. He had such a good regular season. I'm worried about what he did in, in the playoffs. The Thunder, is Case and Wallace going to nab minutes in the guard rotation? OKC has SGA, Josh Giddy, and Dort etched in stone. And then there's Isaiah Joe, Aaron Wiggins, Trey Mann for now. One or two of those guys could be waived just for them to, you know, hit the requisite roster room. Um, but they traded up to get Case and Wallace, and they didn't really get good value for their cap space to get him. 22-plus guarantee million guaranteed for Davis Bertans, which leads me to believe that they have this profound belief in him. Is he going to get minutes right off the bat? The Magic, uh, I, I think this was mentioned in the question. They have a bunch of, like, quote-unquote guards Is there like a weird Anthony Black versus Suggs versus Cole Anthony battle? Do they view Anthony Black as someone who can provide them with wing minutes because of his size? And if not, who of these three falls out of favor? My guess would be Cole Anthony because I'm predicting a big year from Jalen Suggs. But that's, you know, we're talking about a team that also has Marco Fultz, Gary Harris involved in the equation, and you want to put the ball in the hands of Franz Wagner, Paolo Banquero, of course. So they're just a, a fascinating team. And I think that they have just because Anthony Black is so big, I think that their questions are probably a little bit easier to answer. You can mix and max mix and match some of these lineups because we don't care about positions. But you did sign Joe Ingles, and you have Jet Howard and so Howard's going to infuriate crowd the, the guard rotation even more. Um I'm I wanna see I, I think Suggs Anthony Black are the trio to watch is whose minutes is kind of impacted the most by the existence of the, the personnel that's there i have the Suns on here just who's that fifth starter fifth closer is it kate bates diop or Kogi? i wouldn't rule out utah Wantanabe as an option either is it Sir, is it eric gordon do they go to that as a starting lineup as an all offense closing five uh, is that even determined in camp are they are they mixing and matching there who knows the kings i think oddly is it maybe they acquired chris duarte with the intention of viewing him as a wing but could this also become a matter of since you have Malik Monk there, since you have Kevin Herter there, are, are we in the process of, Oh, it's going to be Chris Duarte or Davion Mitchell in sort of this rotation? Because if you've like Malik Monk is basically going to be your backup playmaker anyway. And so I don't think that both Duarte and Mitchell are guaranteed minutes here. It gets a little bit easier to do that if you view Duarte as a wing, but even then it's, you have Kessler Edwards still, and you brought over um, Vrzankov And so, we're kind of planning on playing him. Is he going to be able to log minutes at the three? Um, I guess he has to, but even if he's the backup four, which I guess he could log some minutes there as well. You have Barnes and Keegan Murray too. So there's not just going to be necessarily all these wing minutes available. You'll see Herter at the three a bunch. I think they were going to give Kessler Edwards some real run. I, I, like I liked the Duarte pickup. It was fine. I'm just not a believer. I never have been of Dom Davion Mitchell uh, on offense, and I know what he can bring defensively, but this is very clearly – a team that sent the message. We're going to really just care about blowing you the the hell out. And so that's like a weird sort of quirky. I don't even know if it's a battle, but I feel like it could be the Spurs. I'm just curious about the starting lineup and what will be their most five. And even if you forget about the starting five, what's their most used five man lineup. The locks feel like Trey Jones because they still need the the point guard presence, Devin Vassell and then Victor Wimbanyama, of course. The last two spots are going to come down to Jeremy Sowen, Keldon Johnson, or Zach Collins. And I think a lot of people just default to, well, it's Jeremy Soen and, and Keldon Johnson. I just, Zach Collins makes a lot of sense next to Victor Wembanyama, especially after the season Zach Collins had. If we're talking about the starting five specifically, I might bring Keldon Johnson off the bench. Like let's, I know Sowen's going to be the worst shooter, but let's bring in the extra layer of creation there. Um, but I could also see the theory of, well, let's bring Sewen off the bench so that he can, facilitate. We have Trey Jones, we have Devin Vassell and even Wemby. Like those are guys who can play make for themselves and for others. But I do think that Zach Collins might factor in more prominently to the most important lineups that maybe most people are thinking right now. And then my final one, I've a Jazz, just a bunch of we talked about the forward thing with them already, so I'd like to see, you know, how does their their backup big man rotation sort of shake out? Are we going to see a lot of john collins as your five or is it he's always going to be tethered to walker kessler do we see collins and Hendricks though or collins and olenic do we see collins and marketing sort of up front there the jazz don't have a ton of wings but because they also have a bunch of guards like you can roll a lot smaller but are they willing to go that route just because of what it does to the defense when kessler's off the floor i'm also interested i mentioned the guards who's going to be the primary backup playmaker and i think you can even say who's going to be the best passer on this team, because you have Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, Chris Dunn, Talon Horton Tucker, and like that's and, and Keontae George. Excuse me, that's like your primary passers. Sexton and Clarkson should probably start. So who's just the the guy after that, or is it Dunn? Is it THT, or is it Keontae George? I'm sure at some point in the season they'll all factor in. Maybe some or uh, maybe someone people get moved that opens it up a little bit more. But immediately I'm just like the. If we're gonna start, if they're gonna start Sexton and Clarkston, the THT versus Keontae George versus Chris Dunn. Someone's gonna fall out of favor there, at least in the beginning. My guess would be it might be Talon Horton Tucker. I know George is the rookie, but there's like some real flash to him that I think they might have found. This one will be our final question, and it comes from. Uh Michael or thank you, Michael Brooks, on Twitter. I have no idea who Michael Brooks uh is that they're referring to. So hopefully he's not some sort of a scumbag. Uh and, and if your name, if you're the Michael Brooks, we'll just use your handle here. It's at TMBS underscore lost patron Uh so this question was like a a very like a lo- a longer one. Uh they were the one that s- sought us out. They couldn't join Discord, they couldn't get in the DMs because Elon Musk is a fucking tool. Uh, so here it is. I view my Spurs as doing a slow rebuild similar to the 76ers process um, f- forced by Uncle Dennis right as GM inserted himself and got a first and in the deal instead of just to Rosen. Then he had a few seasons of evaluation and development before flipping players. My question, the Spurs found that potential the guy superstar earliest in the rebuild they could have. Compared to other rebuilds like the process, where does that put the Spurs in terms of how long to draft high and how long to wait to flip those picks into trades? Basically, based on the history of the best rebuilds, admittedly, I'm not well-versed. What is the best... What is the ideal way to use all the assets they have? What milestone should they have as far as player acquisitions, assuming Wemby's development goes as expected expected based on history? And as a fan, if we see too much or not enough, aggression benchmark to other historically great or terrible executions, as a fan, what should we be looking for to evaluate over the long term? So I'm just going to look at this as how should the Spurs kind of operate for their rebuild here. And I think that you want to look at specifically, this season, and say we're going to get another high pick, unless Wemby is just so good that we somehow stumble into the the play in or or playoff race. And so the plan is to look at what you have in Victor Wembanyama because he will dictate how you how quickly you should accelerate your rebuild. And I think other decisions that factor into that is Keldon Johnson's extension so little that that money really doesn't matter. You paid Trey Jones very little over a short term that doesn't matter, but the Devin Vassell extension that's going to kick in or I'm assuming he gets an extension, but Devin Vassell's next deal is going to be quite a bit of money. And so once you sort of sign that first, offer that first really big contract, the clock does start ticking a little bit, but you go through year one with the intention of, okay, we want and are going to have a high draft pick. I think after that, you also probably approach it as year two with Wemby. That's what we're also going to assume, but we're not going to actively shut it down to get that high draft pick. We're not going to make any major moves, but we want to make sure what we have here is real. We only have the one guy, let's say in Devin Vassell, who's on this massive contract. You can always be opportunistic and monitor the trade market, of course, if the right player becomes available. But in terms of actively seeking out that bigger deal or signing, you could say, but just free agency is like fucked at this point, you're not going to find that guy in free agency. I think it's a two year period where it's this year is the, okay, if you want to tank and he's going to be shut down, do it get that, uh, get that other high draft pick in there, even though people aren't necessarily high in the 2024 draft class next year, still file that, that organic route. And I guess if it's really a matter of towards the end of the season, you could go f- for another tank job in the middle of the, I mean, towards the end of the 20, that will be 24, 25 season. Look at this. Now that you have Wemby as that two year experiment. Um, this is assuming his development goes according to plan. If, and then from there, at that point, that's when you get aggressive and sp- looking at the trade market. You're going to be talking about Jeremy Sowen extension at that point anyway. Keldon Johnson's deal is going to be you know smack dab in the middle of it, assuming you haven't, haven't moved him. Um, Trey Jones is going to be a free agent again by that point. Like You really need to look at it. And even You're going to be talking about, oh, do we need a Malachi Branham extension here? Um, so those are going to be your big questions. You want to try and keep your flexibility to that summer of 2025, I would call it. We want to be as flexible and aggressive as possible. That's when you open up the doors. You should also then have a year's worth of information on this high draft pick you got in 2024. Yes, you want to know what you have in the higher draft pick in 25. but assuming Wemby's trajectory goes according to plan, we're not talking about another top five pick. We're talking about maybe a top 10 or 12 pick at that point. And so that player becomes easier to move. And that's because you have these other assets, some of them which will be conveying in that draft. They have that Bulls pick in 25. You're going to start those those Hawks assets are going to be coming down the pipeline, so they might look a little bit more valuable to certain teams. That's when you go on the trademark and say, I don't know who's available. Is Luca available at that point? That's when you go in. Now, if if Wemby's development does not go according to plan, you slow play the hell out of this until you know exactly what you have. In Yama. And I think we know what they have, but if something goes amiss, if he gets injured or doesn't have a great rookie year, I think it pushes back your timeline another year. And so now you're looking at, okay, it's the summer of 2026, Devin Vassell's two years into his massive deal. We've had to make decisions on Jeremy Soen, Malachi Branham. We have some of these other rookies in our program, but if, if just something goes wrong with Weminyama's rookie year, you approach it as, okay, well, let's go through 2025 And that will be targeting to get another high draft pick. Then we take a step back to see what we have in Wemby. And if it's still not going according to plan, you have some real existential questions you need to ask yourself about him. You need to recalibrate your view of him as a franchise centerpiece and whether he needs to be a part of your program. Again, I don't think they're going to get to that point with Wemby So I want to focus on the, I don't even want to call it the more optimistic view, but the more likely path for them, which is Victor Wemby is, as Grant likes to say, 75 to 80% of the player he's supposed to be, two years. Let's, two more years after this, and then it's really time to get cooking. You're going to have to start thinking about Wemby's next contract. You already have the cells I just mentioned uh, Jeremy Soen specifically. You're going to have to think about his deal at that point. Um, so give yourself two years and then get aggressive. And be aggressive through the trade market. Don't The Thunder have done just fine, but they have just an undone godly amount of picks that they got from that Paul George Kawhi trade setting the stage for it they really pulled off a heist with the Russell Westbrook trade as well the Spurs aren't even working with that equity they have a bunch but it's not you can't pearl clutch to the extent of we want to make sure all these guys internally are going to be our future and now you can view it that way if this isn't the most likely outcome but if all of a sudden Vassell and Sohan and Wemby they all look like stars, and even Keldon Johnson reaches the next level. Where Trey Jones and Malachi Branham both just really evolve, and you have two more high draft picks. You could just say, "Hey, this is going to be our core moving forward." But you need to see that's not just a Wemby thing. That's a oh, did Devin Vassell become an All NBA player during this time, making a Shea Gilgis Alexander type leap? And does Jeremy Sowan look like he's going to be someone who makes could make an All NBA team? The Thunder have those a multitude of those types of prospects. Um, on their team that have that have shown the flashes at least where it's like could Josh Giddy be a max player yeah maybe I wouldn't call him a capstock superstar but just max player in those terms possibly Um, you have an all-defense type guy in New Dort you have an all-NBA player in SGA you look at Chet Holmgren and you say that's someone who could make an all-NBA team would you rule it out for Jalen Williams at this point so if you're the Spurs and you really get to that level of riches then it's okay it's not a matter of slow playing it it's just are we going to use our flexibility on then trying to, rather than chase these mega trades in summer of 2025, look at spending on the second tier free agents, kind of like think about what the Rockets did, but you're planning on already being good without these guys where it's, oh yeah, Fred Van Fleet and a Dylan Brooks, like those types of two signings. So if you're really that high on who's already there, I think the three most important players would be um, Jeremy Soan, Devin Vassell and Weminyama in, in that respect. Plus I guess whoever you draft in 2024, if they're coming along, that capably, then yeah, all right, you can look to free agency. Otherwise, I think that a big part of making sure that you maximize, optimize, capitalize on the window of someone as transcendent as Wembenyama to where, yes, because of his size, which is a singularity, and build another singularity, you do have to worry about. Oh, is his? Let's not call him injury prone, but is his heyday as long as you think it's going to be? Ix Grant over under on eleven point five All NBA teams for Victor wembanyama I'm taking me over on it but i'm just saying if you're worried about there needs to be a sense of urgency just because he is a singularity sort of like the pelicans with zion williamson for for much different reasons and um and so yes that's what i'm looking towards if i'm san antonio the summer of 2025 is an inflection point because whether Wemby hits or doesn't like you're going to have the two-year sample from him and you can evaluate from there. And if, if it, you decide you need a third year, because let's say he has a great rookie season and a poor sophomore campaign and stores out, or it's vice versa, a poor rookie campaign explodes as a sophomore. You want that extra year of information. Again, don't then make that big blockbuster trade, but keep your books flexible and add impact free agents at that point. And so it, it feels like they are headed down that path, by the way, for what it's worth. But I think that's the route to go for now. This is, this is a very two-year thing. It's not a year-by-year. I guess if Wemby just comes out and makes an All-NBA team next year, we have to look at the summer of 2024 and wonder, okay, maybe the Spurs should really go um, whole hog after a bigger name if they become available. But I think you target a high draft pick this year, go through it again, let's say, in 2025 as well, and that summer is, is when you strike, so to speak. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. A lot of great questions. Thank you for all of them. Please remember to subscribe, especially if you made it all the way to the end and share this episode. Like if everyone just shares one, each of you just take the time to share this one episode with someone, link them to it on Twitter or someone you know who likes basketball, whatever, the YouTube, the Spotify, the Apple, Um, just throw it out there, share it. Maybe that'll help us increase our audience. But our incumbent audience, I love you all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to one the only, the indelible, the best player on the Charlotte Hornets, Frank Neely.